Shane Paula Doherty, you are an author now and you're also, um, you work with people in addiction and homelessness. You've written a book called The Belvedere Boy and we're going to talk about that in a moment about the Irish patriot Kevin Barry in the centenary year of 1916. And we will come to that, but I think first of all, it's interesting to know your background because your name may be familiar because um, whilst you're now very much a peace activist, you were an IRA bomber. Can you give me a bit of that background? Well, you know, growing up in Derry, uh, you know, through 1968, you know, the Battle of the Bogside and uh, troops coming on the streets in 1969 when I was 14 and, you know, troops beating up friends of mine going, going to school. I, I was beaten up at the bottom of Clarendon Street once in Derry by troops one evening for nothing, really, other than I was a Catholic walking up the street. And I wrote a letter to the Derry Journal about being uh, beaten up by soldiers and got a lot of pressure from the army after that, you know. So I was a youthful writer at the age of, at the age of 16. But uh, me, one of my best friends, um, Paul, he um, met me one day in the bog site when, when, the, when there had been some shootings of um, rioters by uh, British soldiers, you know, just basically cold-blooded murder, and like in our view, especially as teenagers, you know. He said he was going to join the Provisional IRA. Now, we'd both been endeavouring to join the sort of militant slew, as they say, of the official IRA, but it was, it was a worthless organisation, really. No guns, n- like no action, but... He said to me one day, we were going to go to Waterloo Street and be sworn into the IRA, and, you know, did I want to come along? And in a second, I said, yeah, sure. So at the, at the age of 15, boy soldiers, we, uh, in 1970, we, uh, we both were sworn in as sort of, I suppose, junior members of the IRA. And from then on, you know, it was basically hell for leather. You know, in your first months, you were out, sent out to plant incendiary devices in shops in the city centre. You were given tiny guns to go out and shoot at soldiers who were heavily armed and highly trained, you know, and, uh, you know, shortly after you were given bombs and duffel bags to plant outside, you know, banks, offices, police stations. I mean, it was it was teenagers being sent out to wage a war with very dodgy guns and bombs. And, you know, I had friends who were, I had a range of friends who were injured, killed, shot. And here we were, this child's army really being, being in some sense, used and abused by, by older men, you know, to have to wage their war. And... Uh, when one of my friends was shot dead in a, in a gun battle, Eamon Lafferty, the, um, I left the IRA for a while after that, and it was Bloody Sunday. I happened to be in the basically the front line at Russell Street with my best friend Eamon McAteer at the time, and uh, we just happened to be at Russell Street when the paratroopers burst through and started firing. Eamon was so close to the paratroopers, he was captured and arrested. I was a cross-country runner at the college. I ran like the blazes through quite a bit of shooting and passed some uh, shot people into Glenfather Park and uh, I think the experience of Bloody Sunday, the fact that people could be just murdered in cold blood and that nobody really cared, in my view, as a teenager I, I took the view, you know, that nobody really cared I tried to rejoin the IRA after that, but you know there, there wasn't room for teenagers, there were so many adults had, had quickly joined but, but over a short time a lot of those adults fell away, you know, through the reality of the IRA, but, but, but I was willing to fill that place and uh, Following Operation Motorman, I think, in 73, I became quite prominent because I was young, you know, full of piss and vinegar, as they say, you know, fearless, and uh, one of the few who was willing to work with explosives and also develop explosives, you know. So so I took on a lot of uh, incendiary devices, bombs, booby traps, and then I sort of invented um, the Irish version of, uh, IRA version of letter bombs. Those were sent out for a while. I was blown up by one of them myself. I was being treated in Dublin, the Matter Hospital. Were other people injured by your bombs? Well, well, at that point, um, the the endeavour was to attempt to injure, you know, uh, uh, you know, police or other people. But um, 
Well, I mean, we were very good at that time, you see, about giving warnings, you know, and uh, planting these devices in areas where we would stand nearby and stop anybody going near them. So at that point, it was more, at that early stage, it was more like a uh, war against economic targets. And it kind of looked good and felt good because really you weren't you weren't injuring your own, your own local people. Yeah. The, the attempt to, I mean, throwing nail bombs at soldiers who were heavily armed and ready to shoot back, we didn't regard that as morally or politically wrong. You know, like difficult in any way. If we threw nail bombs at soldiers, which which we did, of course, or grenades at them in their jeeps, we were delighted if they were hurt. You know, but I mean, it, we weren't great at this, to be honest. You know, and I can't say we were great at that at that time. It was, it was. But I was thinking of the letter bombs that you said well, you, hurt, you hurt yourself. Did well, it? I, no, no. I was showing people how to make one, and they are. And as I patted it, as I finished, I was in Craig and Heights. It went off, and uh, down near blew my finger off. Uh, lost the sight of an eye for a while. I was being treated down in the Matter Hospital, and it was from there that things got sort of major. A member of the GHQ staff heard that I developed these letter bombs, and although I was at that time um, just gone on 18, he said, you know, uh, the Price sisters and others have been arrested in London. Would you go over alone and uh, run a whole letter bomb campaign? So I thought, yeah, why not? I mean, this is this typical teenage. Give your all. I arrived in London with a backpack, with some explosives, detonators, money, found a flat in Earl's Court and began to send letter bombs to judges, generals, you know, uh, politicians, Home Home Secretary and Reginald Bottling, who was responsible for Bloody Sunday, in my view. 10 Downing Street got a letter bomb, you know, uh, and, and that's the first point where, you know, teenagers think that people open their own letters. In fact, in London, it was amazing that Reginald Bottling opened a letter bomb at his country home because others had secretaries opening letters, and that was the first time you began to realise that... Uh, Civilians were were now in the firing line, and you were responsible for hitting them, you know. And then the bombs. They, were they badly injured, or well, fingers no, and uh, hands, or yeah, what? Yeah, one 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 Irish woman actually was a secretary to uh, some general in the, in the British embassy in Washington. She lost a hand, you know. Mm. A guy at the stock exchange was fiddling with one, and wasn't addressed to me. He was fiddling with it, and he, I think, he was virtually blinded, you know. Yeah. You see, if you if if you can take a teenager's point of view at the time, where your friend shot dead, people shot dead. The idea that I or anybody else, you know, I, I was injured myself. Injuries didn't seem relevant to people. You know, you were young, you didn't think about these things. It was kills that counted. Your commanders in the IRA, they were demanding kill statistics. Injuries didn't count. You know, it was killed soldiers count. Nothing else matters. Like civilians didn't Civilians didn't really matter. Loyalists didn't matter. It was giving London the message that, you know, you kill Irish people, we're going to kill your soldiers and send them back in boxes. I think young people in any country take that kind of view when they see a foreign army rampaging around. But I was bombing London. I started planting time bombs. You know, famously, as I said in my book, (laughs) The Volunteer, I famously rang a police station on one of the first bomb trips and said, you know, there's a bomb such and such, and they hung up on me. I rang back and said, listen, there's a bomb in a shop in Oxford Street, blah, blah, and they hung up on me again, and I suddenly realised. You know, the guy shouted down the phone to me, Another effing hoax, you know, fag off. And I suddenly realised that um, police in London could be getting like ten or 20,000 hoax calls a day, and I suddenly realised, my God, they don't seem... They're not aware that we're here and we're doing the business. So that bomb, fortunately, that was in a shop in Oxford Street, the detonator went off and the, explosion, the high explosive, and it didn't go off for some amazing reason that I can't comprehend to this day. So to get around that, I planted three small bombs in Chelsea one evening near, you know, People mentioned as British intelligence, people in who's who and outside their houses and stuff. I rang the press association and said, I'm giving you a code word. Yeah, so we're going to say, wasn't yeah, it, that code word? Well, I, I, listen, the IRA didn't invent the code word. I invented the code word. It was an 18-year-old who, sitting in London, thought, oh, my God, this is incredibly dangerous. So I rang the press association and said, look, 
the code word is double X. And the proof is there's going to be three bombs in about 10 minutes in Chelsea. And I'm go- in future, I'm going to ring you, not the police. And uh, three bombs went off that evening. I rang back. They said, rock on, we believe you. <laughs> so that was the number we rang, that I rang in future. And I think it was handed over to other units that came later. But, but you see, you learn very quickly. As a patriotic, fervent, you know, motivated IRA volunteer, you learn incredibly quickly that civilians get injured, you know. Your friends get killed. Your comrades get shot and killed or blown up by their own bombs. You yourself get blown up a number of times, as I was, or injured, you know. And uh, you just take it for granted. You know, you get into a mind space where the war, the prosecution of the war, is everything. And, you know, you don't have a great moral contraption around you to... You're on the run. You're moving from house to house. There's troops looking to shoot you. There's cops looking to shoot you. You're, you're, you know, the average life expectancy of a volunteer on the run in Derry at that time was a year. I happened to go about four more years into five years, but very rare. But you don't expect to be alive every... You know, when you left the house to go on operations in the Bogside, Craig or Brandyville, or in London in the morning, you didn't expect to be alive that evening. You know, you had friends who were dead, shot dead, captured, tortured and stuff. So you really didn't feel things. I mean, it was all no, adrenaline and no, the head. Yeah, yeah, you had to harden yourself up to do the job. You know, you were, you were, you were eighteen years of age. I, I already had three years of bombing and uh, incendiary devices and some pot shots at soldiers behind me when I was eighteen. Then I was bombing London alone in the summer of seventy-three. Then they sent me back at Christmas to bomb it again. I did it again. Then when I came back to Ireland, I was too hot to go into Derry. I was on the border trying to blow up, you know, trying to use landmines to blow up armored cars. It's an economy of violence, and you just slot in. You know, the, the, the capacity for a human to engage in either gang violence, Nazi violence, British Army violence, paratroop regiment violence against civilians, it's all too easy for the human mind to think, this is my duty, my job, and think nothing of it. That's what, you know, I can't point to myself as some moral entity going around questioning it like a philosopher when you're a teenager and you're liable to be dead that evening you just wanted to get as much damage done to the Brits as possible before they killed you that that was the the essence of my existence was do as much damage to these bees as I could before tea time because I could be dead by tea time as simple as that really. So they caught you eventually. Tell us what happened. You were caught and taken. No, they didn't to really catch me. No, no, no. They didn't really catch me. They have to say that. No, there was a ceasefire. There was an upfront ceasefire between the IRA and uh, the British government, the British Army. RUC weren't involved. The seventy-four seventy-five ceasefire was declared in December seventy-four as a result of the Fecal Churchmen, mm. the Fecal Talk, as they were called at the time, Protestant Churchmen worked with the IRA leadership to uh, create a ceasefire, and we were asked to vote for or against. And of course. I and the Dairy Brigade, and most people that I know in the Dairy Brigade, not all, were so horrified by the couple of years of war and the terrible cost on all of us, not just the civilian population, but ourselves, that we voted wholesale for the ceasefire. And then everybody could go home and not be arrested. But I lived in an area outside the sort of um, no-go areas. And eventually the Northern Ireland office said, you know, these two people couldn't go home, who were both one, two dairy people, one male and one female, would have been well known at the time, who were wanted for London bombings, me and somebody else, a girl, you know. But then eventually word came, you can go home. I go down to Castleview Park, off the Colmore Road. To me Quite ma- posh. To me Ma's house, yeah. You do get some middle-class volunteers mm-hmm. in the IRA and Derry. I went down home, and uh, within 24 hours, I think, uh, undercover RUC arrested me at home and said, you know, we're going to screw the ceasefire. We, uh, we know that by arresting you were going to smash this ceasefire and that we, we're, you know, we're bugging the phones of the incident centres. We're bugging the phones of Northern Ireland office people. We're not part of the ceasefire. We're going to wreck it. 
When, this is the RUC, and yeah, they actually yeah. said, the undercover RUC, and they actually said this to you. Yeah, 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 they took me down to Victoria Barracks and said, you know, the incident centre phones will be hopping tonight, because there were supposed to be no arrests, you see. Mm. They said they'll be hopping tonight, and uh, we're going to smash the ceasefire through you, because you're wanted for London bombings. Once we get you before a court for London bombings, for letter bombs, there's no way you can be released. So we're going to screw the IRA ceasefire. And, you know, I knew that there would be retaliation because because the IRA couldn't be in a ceasefire with the British government and British army and allow themselves to be poached by the RUC. But it was very badly organised. I mean, the idea that the entire police force of Northern Ireland wasn't informed about the ceasefire and was being held back in barracks by the simple mechanism of being refused British army escorts to leave the barracks. That was the amount of ceasefire they were, they were informed about. But it was inevitable the Dairy Brigade would hit back and... and Waterloo Street, a few, you know, I appeared in court on Saturday morning in Coleraine. I was in Crumlin Road Jail Saturday evening, and Saturday night the IRA opened fire on an RUC foot patrol on Waterloo Street and killed Constable Paul Gray, shot him in the back. He was 19, and that was their retaliation. So the, the odd mechanism of peacemaking, ceasefires, and this, by shooting dead Paul Gray, who was 19, they managed to restore the ceasefire back to status quo, because everybody was happy now. There'd been there'd been an arrest, capture of a volunteer, there'd been a, a shooting of a cop, everything was back to square one that, that, that night. And I was in Crumlin Road Jail, knowing nothing about this, because I was in solitary. And I only discovered at midnight when a load of screws broke into my cell. Did, and did they beat you up? Beat me up. Yeah. But, they were, but when they arrived, they said, a young constable has been shot dead in Derry, over you, you bastard, you know. And uh, his father is the principal officer of this wing that you're on, Principal Officer Gray of Crumlin Road Jail. So I, one, they beat the crap out of me. Two, they tore the sheets up over the next day or two and said, you know, hang yourself or we'll hang you. But I was at the cell window when the police band did the dead march from this principal officer's house in the grounds of Crumlin Road Jail when his son was taken out to be buried. And I thought, my God, like, you vote for a ceasefire, you think it's all over, you even engage in getting your former volunteers involved in community work in the Bogside and Craigan, helping old people and stuff. You get arrested to breach a ceasefire. You're in a cell hearing a young cop's body getting taken away. I just thought, this is a total and complete and utter mess. And, you know, you, 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 many prisoners would have felt that within weeks or days of arriving in prison. You know, So fortunately for me, I was released about four months later as I was hated in the crumb by the screws and uh, the, the loyalists. Many of the screws were loyalist supporters of the UDA and UVF. Well, of course, with their principal officer's son being shot dead in Derry over me, they absolutely hated me. So I was suddenly released four months later in September at Town Hall Street Magistrates Court, suddenly released, you know, and I walk outside thinking, what's going on? Mm. Jumped on by a load of uh, Metropolitan Police taken to an RAF base, Aldergrove in Belfast, flown to London in a great fluster of publicity. London bomber captured, <laughs> you'd think I'd just been captured, uh, you know, stuck up in the in uh, Bow Street Magistrates Court in a big massive amount of publicity and suddenly I'm out of Northern Ireland and suddenly I'm now a London bomber uh, facing, you know, I don't know, 30 life sentences in 20 years and in due course I got my 30 life sentences. Just before I... I'm still back at the place where... I can't get over that you were arrested and the retaliation, the guy that, the, the young guy, Gray, of 19, and you're actually in the prison where that's his father mm-hmm. and the, and you're looking mm-hmm. out 
from yeah. your presence that haven't been beaten up mm. at this man being buried. I mean, it, it's it's yeah, it's well, bizarre. I mean, it's, <laughs> but it stayed with me down the years. You know, when I give talks in Spain or somewhere at universities and colleges or give talks here, you know, about the the very strange and odd mechanisms that turn a young bomber into somebody who's opposed to paramilitary violence, in fact, all violence, you know, state violence. Um, I, I can never escape the moment of Paul Gray. And I would know the volunteers who shot Paul Gray in the back. I would know those volunteers, you know. And initially, when I, when I later left the IRA from my prison cell in England and had a letter in the newspapers announcing that I was resigning from the IRA on moral grounds, blah, blah, people said to me later, the guys who were doing time up north for shooting Paul Gray were absolutely devastated that you would do this, you know, and I thought, you know, we've all got to forge ahead in life and make really hard decisions, you know, the hard decision to get involved in violence might be followed by an equally hard decision to give up violence, you know, whatever the cost to people, but but no, it was a horrendous moment, and it touches me to this day, I mean, I, I might drive up and down to the homeless shelter in Dublin from Roscommon, and I'm a person who prays in the car, <laughs> I say my rosary in the car, and very often I pray for, you know, people who've died of drug overdoses that I've worked with for the last couple of years, women and men that have just died in the last few months, say. Or, but I would often pray for IRA volunteer friends of mine, or I would pray for Paul Gray or mm. people who died in prison that I knew, but I mean, or, or you know, yeah, I pray for, mm. you know, all kinds of people. It's yeah. weird, you know. My, yeah. my solution is, whether it works or not, is to pray my way through it, really, but there yeah. we are. Yeah. And tell me then about prison. So you got a lot of sentences at the, in, in mm-hmm. prison. Were you badly treated there, or and and then, and well, and how did your slow change from Good violence to pacifism come well, together? But you often get interviewed. You know, I've been interviewed. You know, obviously I wrote a book on it, but I've been interviewed down the years by a lot of American and different, different, different television networks around the world. You know, in newspapers and stuff, and they always mm-hmm. go, you know, what was the moment of your transformation? And you go. Brother, there wasn't a moment. There were a thousand moments of slow transformation. But I think having voted for the ceasefire before my arrest was a moment where we were thinking, is there a way out of this? You know, having just gone through the whole Paul Gray 19-year-old shooting and his father and being in the criminal jail for that, you know, having a particular moment would have been standing up in the old Bailey on trial for London bombings and a succession of people coming in to give their evidence who were secretaries or security flunkies in the stock exchange or 10 Downing Street who who weren't even who, who weren't targets but who were injured you know and that above all I I I I decided on my own path to apologize to at the time what I called innocent working class victims of these bombings I apologized from the dock and never been done before you know people were in shock that I'd even had apologized to that degree but um I think you know when I was when you have the time to sit in prison, you know, I, I felt that my arrest was an amazing sort of blessing because one, I was alive. Two, I was free to think and study and learn and try and figure out what the hell had been going on and what was the meaning of life and read and study. So I thought my arrest was an amazing boon. And I didn't care about being in a cell or solitary or didn't care about 30 life sentences in 20 years. They gave me 20 years to make sure that if the life sentences failed, I would still serve about 15. But... I didn't care about all that. I was alive. Friends were dead. Many people were dead. I was trying to make some sense of it all. And uh, along comes a Jesuit priest, famous Jesuit priest called Anthony Lawn, who was made even more famous by the fact that he had a role in the mission, the movie The Mission with uh, Jeremy Irons and De Niro. But when I first came across this Jesuit priest in Brixton Prison in London, he was not well. 
in with the Irish prisoners. They didn't like him. He didn't like them. He didn't like terrorists. He was an ex-Second World War Army officer who'd become a Jesuit, and he was the real thing, you know, tough, hard, brilliant mind, you know, and uh, he had a very low opinion of uh, the IRA. And by the time I met him in Brixton Prison, he had sent his passport back to the passport office to demand the word English on it and the word British taken off, and he got that. He was quite proud of that. But he and I began a real tough, extreme, argumentative, call it a relationship, you know, in the sense we fought like the Blue Blazers, the two of us. And uh, there was one famous moment when he was taking snuff up his nose, you know. He's a character. As he left my cell one evening, sniffing snuff up his nose from his little tin, I had shouted at him, you know, where's the proof your God exists, you fucking old be And he, uh, he shouted back at me, uh, why the four Gospels, of course, and he slammed the cell door. So I, I do recall ringing the cell bell later and saying, give me a copy of this Bible. And after turning about 1,700 pages, I discovered they put the good bit down the back of the book. That's all I knew about the Bible. And I read the four Gospels in one sitting to try and argue more with uh, Anthony Vaughan, SJ. And it, it was a major shock and dent to my life at the age of 20, uh, 21, gone up to the old Bailey to have read these four Gospels about this character, Jesus Christ, that I knew nothing about before. Absolutely nothing. Not even from growing up in Derry. Like, you'd have been going to Mass. Your mummy would have trailed you out, surely. So shite, pious practices. It doesn't mean anything, you know. There's no knowledge of Jesus Christ as a character in that. You know, it's pious practices and ritualistic practices. You know, you have to leave off the things of childhood at some point and bite the bullet on an adult, more sort of deep and intellectual kind of relationship with God or whatever God is. You have to try and get, you know, Jesus Christ in the Gospels, but going to Mass every week in Derry was a production, you know, in the cathedral, for heaven's sake. <laughs> you couldn't hear anything. And uh, snippets of the Gospel didn't mean anything to me. And, uh, you know, no, no, it didn't. Until I read the four Gospels, I knew nothing about Jesus Christ, you know, and, and, and his message in it, really. And there's something about reading one gospel alone in one mm. sitting never mind four what happened mm. how did it impact you well I, I mean it's 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 a life changing event you know it was for me it was like an early version you know I'd be a computer scientist and computer head nowadays you know big into digital stuff and I've got a H-step and masters in, in computing you know and, but it was like an early version of uh, like a it was almost like a virtual reality four-sided shot four-sided DVD of the life of Jesus, you know, I mean, you read it in an intense environment, your solitary cell, you read it at night in one sitting, you don't stop till you get to the end, you know, and you think, it was such an incredible, incredible uh, view of Jesus from these four, four sides, you know, that it was almost like creating a hologram entity, it was a huge impact on me at the time, you know, and I thought, God, imagine reading this just before you're going to go to court and not recognize the court and tell them to fuck off and you know, take it, take it on the chin. I went to court with a lot of doubts and stuff. Took, took, you know, didn't recognize the court. Got the 30 life sentence, 20 years. Entered solitary, refused to wear a criminal uniform and wormwood scrubs. Was naked for 15 months in solitary, but it was the best 15 months of my life because I continued the search to know, did God exist? Was this Jesus character? I mean, the character of Jesus in the four Gospels was amazing, but I didn't believe he could still exist after 2,000 years. And I was searching around and, Poor old Bishop Eddie Daly that I, and Derry who'd been trying to contact me and I'd been telling him to back off and stick his Catholic rubbish and stuff. He'd been very good to my mother and, uh, and of course, he always was. And he was said, she devastated? I'm sure she was that uh, you were yeah, in the area. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, she was... 
Yeah, she was. I mean, yeah, she, she she might have been able to ex- live with the fact that I was in the IRA and hadn't done anything, but to wake <laughs> up one day and find... But you had done some things, yeah. Yeah, but to wake up the fact that Paul Gray was shot dead and a mm. 19-year-old cop over mm. me, and then I'm up in London for 10 mm. Downing Street and mm. Stock Exchange and Reginald Modeling, the Home Secretary, blowing up by a letter bomb at his country house. I mean, she was totally devastated, wouldn't be the word for it, for a dairy, you know, mother. mother. Mm. But... Um, where were we, Pat? Yeah, well, Eddie Daly was good oh, to yeah, her. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as he was to so many, like yeah. he, so he tried to contact you. You rejected yeah, yeah, his did, yeah, approaches, did, and did, then you know, yeah, you know, you're a manly young masculine male. You know, you don't want some old priest uh, with his religion hanging after you. But eventually, he, at the very point where I was wondering, you know, is there any proof that this JC exists after two thousand years? Because I couldn't see any proof. He had been, Eddie had been holidaying down in Mount Charles, and there was an amazing Second World War war hero there called John McCaffrey, who had been one of the founder members of the SOE, the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War, the forerunners of the SAS. He was a Scots-Irish communist. And he, he was out in Italy, and uh, people in some village said to him, why don't you go up the mountain there and see this stigmatist Capuchin priest? And he said, F all that, you know. But he later went up and he met Padre Peel. And... Uh, Padre Pio converted him on the spot by telling him his life, telling him his sins, telling him his actions. And Pio told him that after the war, you, John, will be my main fundraiser for the building of the House for the Relief of Suffering, the biggest hospital in southern Italy, 100 yards from the, from the friary. And he, when he retired to Mount Charles, he wrote a book called uh, Padre Pio, Tales of Padre Pio, the Friar of San Giovanni, you know. Just a little hardcover book about how a former soldier found a, a, a represented Christ in Padre Pio. And I, Eddie Daly sent me this book, and he wouldn't have been aware it was bang on the time I was wondering, is there any proof that JC exists? Because if he does, I'm in. If he doesn't, I'm not in. <laughs> but reading this book about Padre Pio, his stigmata, his life, his influence on Irish people, you know, and of course later there was the, uh, there was the story of, you know, one of the two miracles that... Uh, that resulted in this canonization occurred in Derry to a Derry woman. I mean, it had a humongous impact on me, Padre Pio, to this day, you know. So I would say my spiritual director on a daily basis is Padre Pio <laughs> to this day. You know, I'm, I, I, there's nothing I don't know about him. I've read about him and investigated and been down to the friary many times. And he's a huge influence on my life to this day, you know, every day, in fact. And uh, it, it, but it hurt me very much because when you're doing your 30 life sentences in 20 years and you're a, hardcore IRA volunteer, you're naked and solitary, refusing to wear a criminal uniform. The last thing you expect is some big explosion in your in your philosophy of life, your ethics, your morality, your politics. My God, like it's to confront the idea of a U-turn that late, knowing what it would do to your comrades in prison, knowing what it would do to yourself, isolation. But I I don't know, I forged ahead. I, I, I the most important line that I got in the gospel in the reading of the four Gospels, to this day, the biggest thing that hit me, and I don't know why, don't ask me why, was Matthew's Gospel, where, um, I think it's chapter 5, where, um, uh, you know, don't, where uh, Jesus said, you know, don't come, if you come to the altar to offer your gift, and there remember that your brother has something against you, go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And this hit me like a kind of a hand grenade where I thought, I can't even get involved in any religious stuff until I confront victims and injustice in the violence we used. So I had this amazing 
punch from this and I suddenly had this notion from reading a lot of penal literature and Quaker literature about prisons and prisoners, I had this notion that I should write letters of apology to, first of all, you know, the innocent civilians I'd injured. So I bunched up one day to the prison authorities and said, I'd like to write letters of apology to my victims, you know, and they were completely blown away and thought, there's no way a dirty, rotten terrorist is ever going to be allowed to say sorry. Uh, ever allowed to say sorry. There's no way a dirty, rotten terrorist is going to get any moral reward for this, any moral high ground for this. So they blocked it completely. And there was a poor late vocation priest there called uh, Jerry Ennis, who'd been a banker and late vocation priest, and he was dumped into the prison system when he was ordained. And he used to tell me he felt... He was, was he a chaplain? Yeah, he was yeah. a chaplain to Wormwood Scrubs. And his brother was a magistrate up in, up in Lancashire, and he, but he felt he was dumped into the prisons, and he, he felt it would be the worst possible priesthood and the worst possible vocation. And then he met me, and I was going through this incredible sort of uh, change, and, and uh, he was blown away by me changing, and he was blown away by, you know, what he called a Pauline conversion. I didn't know anything about that. And uh, then he was blown away by meeting the, Gil- you know, the Birmingham Six guys and Guildford Four. Uh, but, but, you know, he, he, um, he really helped me. He, he heard my, you know, he knew me very well in my solitary cell. We talked for hundreds of hours, and he knew that I was genuine in my desire to apologise to my victims. So I had to fight a big campaign with members of Parliament, House of Lords, bishops, to get the Home Office to bend. And eventually they allowed a half measure per Jerry Ennis. Father Jerry Ennis had to write to the victims on prison notepaper saying, would you like to receive a letter from a dirty, rotten terrorist who wants to say sorry? So half of the victims wrote back and said yes, and I wrote letters of apology to them. But a couple of them took them to the news of the world without my knowledge, obviously. And one day, when I was coming down on a Sunday morning from my cell in Wormwood Scrubs, morning with my breakfast tray, you see, and I was going down the metal stairwells to the ground floor to get my breakfast, and I realised there's something new and strange, and it's all about me, really, you know. And then one of the screws at the breakfast uh, area said to me, you know, just marking your card, you're... There's a massive story in the news of the world about you, and it ain't good, you know. See, there, were, there was in the English prison system. I was in D Wing or Wormwood Scrubs. There were 300 life sentence prisoners, 300 lifers and long termers there. The word guilty never applied. Everybody was innocent, and nobody ever mentioned guilty. So suddenly they pick up their something in the news of the screws, as they called it, in the news of the world newspaper. <laughs> All these guys, and they suddenly realise, holy shit! There's a guy upstairs, Shane Polidori. Not only says he's guilty, he says he's Mired in sin, he's sorry, and he wants to apologise to his victims. Oh my God, you cannot imagine the reaction among the 300 English. And I mean, these lifers and long-timers were all completely blown away. But the IRA prisoners were shocked. Well, they were shocked. They were blown away. They were horrified. They were, they were in shock because they just couldn't see it coming. And they hadn't been in my, in, in my intense solitary confinement, my intense Crumlin Road jail experience my intense five years of bombing, they just weren't in my sort of headspace. And, uh, you know, I mean, short time after that, one of these guys, you know, I don't have much time for him in my memory, to be honest, but he was one of the guys who actually had bombed Birmingham. He he told some of the other IRA prisoners, you know, we might have to kill him, we might become an informer. And one or two of the IRA guys who were friendly to me said, you know, this guy's almost plotting your, your killing in your cell. And, you know, it was a tough time, mm, you know. But you'd be uh, really scared. Well, well, yeah, but the strange thing was, you know, the same fiery intensity that, intensity that had propelled me through five years of bombing, mm. shooting, and London bombings, and landmines, mm. and booby traps, 
and friends killed was the same intensity that propelled me through the years of solitary. And most of the IRA prisoners didn't speak to me for the next eight years, wouldn't even see me in a corridor. Even if we were in solitary together, would walk around the solitary yard and blank me, you know. And you realise that so-called comradeship and so-called political comradeship has its has its um, limits. You look at political parties nowadays and the fallouts over... over well, it was obviously much worse in the paramilitary end, but, you know, you realise that ultimately that uh, there was no freedom of thought or freedom of expression in these organisations. And the best thing I ever did in my life, uh, apart from repent, and that's a big word in my life, was to leave the IRA and that whole horror of uh, paramilitary uh, violence to its own mm-hmm. to its own volunteers, you know, was the best thing I ever did, was to get the hell out of it, you know. And you did that, and it, you paid a price because you were isolated, mm-hmm. you were intimidated at some level, in terms mm-hmm. of that one person anyway, and mm-hmm. also, you know, it's not, it's not easy to turn your back on things and to have the courage mm-hmm. oh, yeah. of that, you know, yeah. because at every level you're surrounded. Mm-hmm. Did the other, did Father... Um, Lang, Lawn, did Father Lawn, the Jesuit, help you or anybody else? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you see, you see, the odd thing was that as you moved through the prison system, you you were just getting moved around like a chess piece on a chessboard of prisons that were very connected, you know. So um, the chaplains, there weren't that many Catholic chaplains in the prison, especially in London. They, you know, Brixton Prison was in London. Wormwood Scrubs was in London. These chaplains, if one or other of the chaplains took some time out or went on holiday, the others stepped in. So... Um, I only recently contacted the Jesuits in England. I'm writing a little booklet. Uh, I wrote one recently about um, volume one in Stories of a Soul. We simple thing about my experience as a Medjugorje. Neither for nor against, just mm. placing my own experience out there. I'm following that up with, um, uh, it's called Small Tales of Medjugorje, but I'm writing a second one. It's Small Tales of Her Majesty's Prisons, and it's just about the people who helped me down the years in prison. And you know, the great number of those are priests, and or nuns, because when the paramilitaries exploit their young people and cast them into prisons in Long Cash, Crumlin Road or wherever, Wormwood Scrubs or wherever, they essentially just hand them over to the Catholic Church and say, you know, now you look after them, because they don't care about you once you're in prison, they don't do anything for you. You end up being almost chaplain by priests and nuns, and these were extremely good people. I mean, everybody remembers Sister Sarah Clark's many years of visiting prisoners in, in London, and up and down England. And I, I remember, you know, Cardinal O'Fee coming to visit me regularly, Bishop Edward Daly coming to visit me regularly, Father Paddy O'Kane and Derry coming to visit me regularly, good priests in England, uh, Father Anthony Lawn, Father James Langan. Uh, James Langan, the Jesuit? Jesuit, yeah. He's still alive, actually. I'm hoping to make contact with him in the next week or two in Preston. But uh, um, he had, Father, just to give a quick story about this Jesuit in Brixton Prison, there was a secondary priest in Brixton Prison, he was a very nice guy, Father James Langan, and he told me an amazing story. He had been chaplain to the Price Sisters during their entire hunger strike, and he'd become exceptionally close to them. They had changed his view of IRA members and violence, but he had also had a huge impact on them. But long after they'd been transferred back to Northern Ireland to, to Armagh Jail, he told me that he'd never told them one secret. And I said, what's that? And he said, I never told him. He said, my sister was a barrister and she was injured in their bombing at the Old Bailey. Wow. And he, and you know, and he was so good. And he's still alive. He's a great story to tell about his ministry to the Price Sisters, one of whom is now dead. And, you know, I felt that I, I have some grasp on these stories and I'm writing them as volume two in that series. Stories of a soul. 
that uh, just to get it out there and put it on record. I'm, yeah. I'm not expecting a bestseller, but I do like to put stuff on record because priests helped me. Priests never let me down in my 14 and a half years in prison. Priests That's an amazing me. story about that Jesuit, mm. Father Lankin, that his... So his sister was a barrister mm. and was injured in the bombing, and yet he looked after the Price sister. Yeah, he was, yeah. But he's a great priest, you know. But mm. you see, you see, I... I, I, I I exist in a, in an Ireland nowadays that's wholly secularized, very anti-church. I never hear anybody saying anything good about a priest. And yet I walk around in my little bubble, having been saved by priests, helped by priests. When I was in solitary and being kicked around the English prisons, it was Irish churchmen and English priests who came to my aid, campaigned for me, campaigned for other prisoners, campaigned for prisoners' rights, campaigned for justice and repatriation. And, you know, I don't feel that it's fair to the memory of all the good priests I've met in my life not to tell the dramatic stories of many of them who helped me. And, and those know, who wrote to you, Shane Paul, because I, I, I think the mutual story we have, which is probably worth telling, but it mm-hmm. is that Sister Sheila here in Ireland, who was dying and I was visiting her and had motor neuron just during the summer now, and um, I went in to see her and she couldn't speak, but she wrote Do you know Shane Paul O'Doherty? And of course, I, you had emailed me about your book, but I had taken months to reply. I can see your face grimacing. We'll not go into that. But I lifted my mobile phone and I said, I'll ring him. Would you like to talk? And the minute I said to you, I just said, Shane Paul, this is Pat Coyle. I don't think I'd spoken to you in years. And you said, you never got back to me about my book, which we're now going to talk about in a moment. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Sister Sheila's face lit up. I said, I'm here with Sister Sheila. And you said, oh, my God, Sister Sheila, I owe so much to yeah, you. Yeah. And she died yeah. three days later. She died, that was on the Thursday. Yeah. I think she died yeah. the following week. It was amazing. Well, and she was thrilled. It was just such mm-hmm. a thrill. Mm-hmm. Well, when you said to me, you were saying to me at one point, Pat, you know, what's Sister Sheila's surname? And I was able to call it up in a second, Sister Sheila Jeannie, because I had written to her now and then, obviously, to thank her. But there, there was a sort of a cohort of good priests and good nuns and sisters, religious sisters who always wrote to prison prisoners in England and prisoners in prison. But more importantly than that, they actually prayed a mountain for prisoners. And you know, I I'm I'm an extremely skeptical Catholic in the sense that I need to test everything, I need to see, touch and feel. I'm the Thomas of my Catholic faith, but I over the years I I can't deny the fact that I could almost feel the power of people praying for me when things got very bad in prison and there were you know, extremely tough times, violent times, dangerous times. There's no doubt that I felt the power of Sister Sheila's prayers. She would write to me, send me cards. Now and again I would write back. When I got out, I wrote to her a couple of times. But I kept her in mind, you know, and you never forget somebody who's stood with you for 14 or 15 years. How long did you serve, uh, Shane Paul? Was 14 it fi- and a half years. 14, so you served the 14 and a half years. Oh, you didn't get any much no, remission. No, I always say to people that I was, many of the guys I work with in the homeless services are ex-prisoners, and we do chat about prison, you see, and they're totally amazed that when they've served one year or two years, eventually, I might say very rarely to one or two of them, well, I did 14 and a half, and they go, oh, my God. And we say, yeah, we used to say that your sentence was what we called in the English prisons a shit and a shave. Anything under 10 years was called, pardon my French, a shit and a shave is a quick turnaround. <laughs> but up at 14 and a half, I always say to people, the last six months were the longest part because you've got some airy-fairy release date up ahead and the hours slow right down. And whereas you set your mind at the start of a prison sentence to just serve it, and it flies by, I mean, to be honest, when you're young, the last six months, the clock seems to slow. It's like some weird movie where the clocks do slow and you... <laughs> 
nothing ever happens. I, I have experience of uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, where time can speed up, but time can slow down incredibly. You know, the last six months was the longest period of my whole life. But, but, but Sister Sheila and these good people, I never forget them. Indeed, this volume too is... Detri- you know, most... I've read a lot of prison literature from around the world, you know, Africa, Latin America, Britain, Ireland, America, over the years, you know, and a lot of it's about, you know, the horror of prison, the tough guy surviving, you know, Soledad brother, Boli Solyinka, the man died, all these different famous prison stories, you know, Tom Clark's penal days, but, you know, they're all about mostly the prisoner, but I'm writing a memoir of prison, and it's not about me, it's about all the good people who impacted on me and helped me grow and change and become a normalized human being with a, you know with life prospects and who changed my and given me the energy to persevere and all that I do over the years you know these that's my my memoir of prison isn't some you know ridiculous tale about the daily grind it's got nothing to do with that my my memoir is about the people who who gave themselves to prisoners in many ways and it's not just about visiting or sending money it's even the power of prayer, you know, because you take away prayer, you take away hope. And, you know, you, prayer in my life, in my skeptical life, you know, prayer has its own power to help people. Often the people I can't reach, I pray for them, you know. And then I've seen strange and wonderful things happen in, in you know, homeless services and prisons over the years where it can only be the power of prayer. Mm. But uh, I'm a Padre Peel fan, you see, yeah. so he, he taught that, you know, the greatest gift you could give a person is to pray for them, you know. I, however much the world surrounding me might laugh at this, that's my fundamental belief uh, in life. You know, the greatest gift you can give somebody is to pray for them, you know, for their conversion and so So what I notice in you in terms of your own conversion or that process of coming to a sense of who you really are before God, that um, I suppose it, it strikes me that it's not just a, a flip, you know, I flipped over, I was a terrorist in inverted commas, I'm now a pacifist in inverted commas Mm. because you have a deep understanding and compassion for yourself and for all of the people that Mm. did the things you did and also for those who have suffered and for a system that also perpetuates Mm. in in an almost Girardian way that the victim becomes the victimizer, becomes the victim and uh, the breaking out of that Mm. which requires deep suffering and Mm. profound powerlessness Mm. like Mm. naked in a cell for how many Mm. months yeah, but you see, it was a, in a way, I look at it as an extreme... You know, when I was looking at Kevin Barry's life... Yeah, let's look at that. Yeah, yeah, well, you see, you see I, I, I worked in a homeless shelter for six years in Dublin 7, one of my favourite areas of Dublin. We'd taken Church Street, Smithfield and those areas, Church Street Friary, which I love for its history, about 1916, but I, I would always pass the tap pub, go, going to work at night in a homeless service, I would pass the tap pub, and there's a big plaque on the wall there commemorating the arrest of Kevin Barry. And I, I never liked the idea of Kevin Barry, a little sort of, you know, toy soldier painted in the Republican colours, you know, stick to the Republic. You know, he was too too thin and shallow. And one night I began to read about uh, Kevin in Wikipedia and then I bought Donald O'Donovan, his nephew's book about him. Then I began to he read... He was a young, just give it a wee bit Well, of Kevin Barry was 15 when he joined the... The Irish Volunteers. Like yourself? Yeah, yeah. You see, that was, I, I saw some parallels. And he was 15 when he joined the Irish Volunteers. I was 15 when I joined the IRA. He was kind of inducted into the IRB, uh, secret of IRB, a secret organisation within the Irish Volunteers. 
and he got involved in stuff kind of beyond his capacity and beyond his years, you know. Got involved in an ambush, and he, he couldn't hack it, in my view, you know. He, he wasn't made for it. He got captured with a gun in his hand. Ridiculous. 24 IRA men ran away and left him and uh, turned their backs on him, and he was captured, and he was executed six weeks later. But the story was, you know, that he sort of marched down to the gallows, devil may care, and got hanged for Ireland. But Kevin Barry, yeah, 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 this, this is a ballad in the song. Yeah. Yeah. He was that middle class, I'd say, like yourself. He mm. went to Belvedere College, mm. educated by mm. the Jesuits, yeah. Oh, he was a product of uh, Belvedere. Mm. And I was fascinated by... I, I got into the Belvedere archive for a couple of days and locked in a room with all his personal effects and papers. But I, I read everything there was to read about Kevin, but in particular, the essential question for me was... How did a young guy of 18 years involved in the shootings of dead of three soldiers, one of whom was 15, one of whom was 19, and one of whom was 20, how did a young Catholic guy who served Mass every day in St. Teresa's in Clarendon Street, who was in two sodalities in Belvedere, who carried, when he went to dances, carried in his inside pocket a prayer for purity card with his guardian angel on it, for heaven's sake, how did a mad Catholic of the Rosie Breeze Brigade of the IRA come to terms with the death of three young soldiers in the six weeks before his hanging. That was my interest in writing Belvedere Boy, the play I've I've written. And in the research, I discovered precisely how he managed to walk to the gallows. Because many people had to be dragged to the gallows by prison officers who were called discipline officers. They had to be dragged to it, kicking and screaming, because they didn't want to die. And I, I wanted to know how Kevin walked to the gallows. And were his last words, you know, stick to the Republic? And of course they weren't. And Why the, is that what's attributed to him? Yeah, yeah, you know, the typical books say his last words were stick to the Republic, which is, of course, a load of crapology, you know, they weren't his last words. It's As you can easily find out in his nephew's book, uh, you know, Donald O'Donovan, who wrote for the Irish Times for 40 years, he, he wrote the great book on Kevin Barry, you know. Uh, he was Kevin's nephew. And um, even if you read it extremely carefully, you can find in there not greatly emphasised, but you can find pointers to that that's not what happened. You know, what Kevin had an amazing change of mind, an amazing uh, repentance, but he had an amazing help to die. He didn't. He, he, he told uh, a Capuchin visitor that he was afraid to die, didn't have the strength to die, and there was a mechanism that this priest gave him that enabled him to strengthen himself. But there was a Jesuit scholastic in those days called Tom Cunahan, who was his rugby coach in Belvedere and uh, Tom visited him Tom wrote in a most amazing memory of his last visit with Kevin about Kevin's spirituality his preparation for death and uh, I researched Tom Coon and he was a Jesuit who lived into his 90s he was called the Coon yeah yeah but he was he was um, you know he was a great he was a, quite a labour guy and quite quite labour in his views and he um, he was very fond of the Christian brothers. In fact, he left in his will some some, some uh, direction that he didn't want his room to be emptied out by Jesuits. It was to be emptied out by Christian brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But uh, he, um, he had an amazing influence on Kevin's last hours, actually, funny enough. He told Kevin about the Bonamores confraternity. Bonamores is a Latin for a happy death or a good death society, which the Jesuits used to promote for three centuries. They could bring it back, actually, because we've all this, with this rash of suicides mm. and, and uh, pop star deaths that are meaningless and Irish disc jockey deaths that are meaningless in atheism. We could do with the reconstitution of the Bonamore Society to give some meaning to death, spiritual meaning to it. But 
But I've I've written a play basically telling the truth about Kevin, the truth that was never told. As I say, the greatest story never told about Kevin is in the play called Belvedere Boy, and it's punching its way out there. And uh, it's making its way slowly across the world. And so what did the Kuhns, uh, Father Cunahan say in, in, when you, when, that you read um, well, uh, about the change then? Or are you not giving oh, no, no. it well, a spoiler of the book? <laughs> thank you. Thank you for recognising. can't give all my secrets. But, no. between, but it's a typical story of an IRA guy in prison. Do you think it mirrored your story? Are you reading it through your eyes or do you think this is justifiably... <sighs> One question at a time, Pat. The first thing is, you know, Kevin wouldn't have died well without the ministry of Father Augustine and Tom Coonan. There's no doubt about that. He didn't have the architecture, the mental space, the mental direction to die well. He got the Bona Moors structure from Tom Coonan and he got another mechanism about dying well from Father Augustine in Church Street who had ministered to the 1916 as signatories, you got it from basically too religious, you know. As as I got my a lot of the meat for my change from religious, I found that was similar. But um, no, I've done up. You see, I, I've used elements of my story to understand Kevin's story. You know, I I had the memory of Paul Gray at nineteen being shot in the back in Derry, within hours of my arrest, and it haunted me down the years. Now, Kevin didn't get years, he got six weeks. So I've looked in detail at the three soldiers who lost their lives in the shootings in Church Street. I've looked at their age, one was 15, one was 19, one was 20. The 15-year-old had lied about his age to be able to get a wage to send home to his mother in England. These three soldiers, they weren't intending to shoot soldiers on the day, they just wanted their weapons. There was no attacking soldiers in those days, at that time in the War of Independence. And Kevin suddenly had the blood of three young soldiers on him. He was in the back of the truck where... They were lying, dying, screaming in agony. The gun that Kevin had 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 um, dum-dum ammunition in it, which was contrary to, you know, the war at the time. He could have been executed on the spot for that. The wounds that these guys suffered, if you read the details of their last hours, how badly they were treated by their own army, how they were roughly uh, cut open in butcher slabs by army surgeons who moments before had been, you know, drinking whiskey and smoking cigars, I mean... These three young men died a terrible death. I've read their details of their inquests. And, and there's no doubt that Kevin, as an extremely thoughtful, very religious character, daily masker, in fact, he was late for the ambush on Monday the 20th of September because he'd gone to Mass and Communion that, that morning. He was half an hour late for the ambush, which fortunately was an hour late. But, um, you know, he was deeply Catholic, as I was, in a way, certainly the culture of Catholicism, and he couldn't have done anything other than he did, which was he repented. But I have great difficulty getting this play out there because we live in a time, 25, 30 years ago, if you wrote a play and the essence of it was uh, repentance and some religious essence, um, it might have gotten somewhere, but now it's a job of work in a secularized society where nobody wants to hear about anything Catholic, you know, anything good about priests or religious. Here I am trying to punt out a story. When the trajectory of my life has turned... Because 20, 25 years ago, as priests in Derry always say to me and in up north say, oh my God, Shane, you were lionized by Eddie Daly, Cardinal O'Fee, you know, and others who used your story all the time to, you know, lambast the IRA. You were like, you were sort of, you know, the number one with Bishop Eddie Daly, Tom O'Fee, Cardinal Basil Hume was a visitor and friend of yours. I remember the days when I was kind of hot stuff with church people. But with the changing current 
of society over the years, terrorism, violence. Now I'm back where I started, which is there isn't a churchman who wants to be seen in public with me in the Catholic Church because they don't want to be associated with any form of terrorism. And, you know, it's great in a way to have seen the, the, the final outcome of a repentance. It's good to be alone these years, to be somewhat sort of um, isolated from the Catholic Church because, you know, a, a, a millionaire friend of mine a few years ago was going to pass through Armagh and he raised a few millions for the re- rehab of the, of the cathedral in Armagh and he, he contacted a religious office ahead of time and said, you know, I'll be calling up with Shane Paul O'Doherty. And he got a call later and said, uh, come alone. But, you know, it's great to have reached a point where my repentance is now so shunned because it keeps you on the margin, keeps you back with the people on the margin and the homeless and the prisoners, you know, people who feel that the church has no message for them, really, because, because you know, and I can see the wheel turning, you know, churchmen need to feel that they're under pressure in the media, they're under pressure to stay away from sinners. And, uh, you know, it's good for me, it's healthy for me, because... It gets too comfortable if you're kind of popular. Now I'm more popular in Spain. I'm more popular with Protestant churchmen. This book, The Belvedere Uh, Boy, I see is in Spanish as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got a good footprint in Spain because I've always made an effort to get my my own book, The Volunteer, into Spanish. I've toured all the Spanish universities and cities for a very large secular organization there where Rafa Nadal, the tennis player, is a patron. They bring in speakers from around the world. Mm. They talk to young people about change and growth and, you know, people from sports, people from... uh, from Paralympics and so on. And they bring me in because my book did well in Spain and I talk to young people about the power to change, you know, uh, regardless of how deep in they are to whatever their sin or evil is, you know, I say never be afraid to turn back. So I've had a very, I've had seven or eight years of touring Spain and speaking. But then, you know, you get more invites now from from the Church of Ireland and other Christian groups. You know, I'm going out to Glen Cree to talk to the Bishop of Jerusalem, Bishop Dewani, on the 5th of December, and the Archbishop, uh, Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin will be there listening. But And uh, it's it's funny that uh, the Catholic Church has so has, has moved so far away from me that it's good because it's healthy because, you know, you're forced to you're forced to remain on the margin. And in the margin, you have nobody to turn to except JC. Because he was on the margin too. Yeah, yeah, you see. So, I mean, it's good because all the people who feel that they're marginalized by the church, <laughs> you can say, look at me. <laughs> You know, I was popular 20 years ago and now they wouldn't be seen dead on the stage with me. And it's good because you're reminded of where the power is, that the real power is in Jesus Christ, not in your own popularity and yeah. BS like that, you know. Yeah. It's good. It's good to, be, uh, good to be on the margin again. Well, that's a good note to end on um, from somebody who has stayed on the margin and paid the price and has a message to give from that margin. Can I say to your, your listeners that I did the Camino El Jesuit Communication Centre this morning, the drive up from Roscommon through Dublin traffic to your new headquarters is worse than the Camino de Santiago. <laughs> this is a culty boy <laughs> coming to the town, <laughs> to coming to Dublin. Can I also give a plug to your book? Um, it's called Belvedere Boy. It's, it's a play, and I'm sure you'd love to see put people putting it on. Kevin Barry, Irish Patriot. Your other two books that you mentioned, one is The Tales of Medjugorje. It's small not Tales Small Tales of Medjugorje, and it's mm-hmm. neither for nor against, no, but it's, a, it's an, a look from your perspective. And the other one you're working on is... Well, it's uh, small tales of Her, of Her Majesty's prisons, and it, it's about the people who never get a mention normally. Not about me in prison. It's about all the people who fought their way into the prisons and helped long-term prisoners. You know, because people doing twenty or thirty life sentences, even nowadays, these sex offenders doing big life sentences or 
former priests or religious do in huge sentences. You know, what I learned in my years in prison from churchmen and religious sisters was there's value in a soul even when they're mired in sin. And if there is value in a soul, you have to see it through somebody trying to save them or help them. And indeed, now you'd look around to see churchmen who beat their way into prisons. It's, an, it's, it's a rare time to be alive, to live this long and seen prisons so marginalized from the church over the years. If you go back 25 years, you could name churchmen who were constant visitors and being criticized in the press. Cardinal O'Fee was famously criticized in the Sun newspaper for being the, the chaplain to the IRA for his visits to Long Kesh, you know, but uh, they were great men in my view, you know, that those churchmen who were close to the people, with all their sins and faults. Eddie Daly, you know. Uh, and in a way, like you've mentioned, the paedophile priests mm-hmm. who are there now, and in some ways they're like the you, you know, mm-hmm. the, the terrorist of mm-hmm. years gone by, mm-hmm. and they're human beings too. You're making that point that they are human beings as well. In the economy of the church, what's the value of every soul? I grew up in an era when priests, religious, even high bishops and cardinals, beat their way into my cell and to other people's cells and prisons because a soul was important. Now you can look at many people on the margins of church and, and, and in prisons and nobody's beaten the path to the door. We've lost something in the last two decades. We've lost the, the value of the, uh, you know, we, we've lost, yeah, you know, we've lost the value of the sinner, you know, you know, like the hound of heaven is missing who would seek out and save the lost, you know, but uh, hmm, interesting food for thought for me. Shane Polidorty, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today.